0: Well, to all those other dads out there, I want to add my happy Father's Day as well. I hope it's been good so far. It's early, but I hope your Father's Day has been going well so far. Hope you get a lot of nice gifts you can add to your collection of mugs and ties that uh, that we all need more of, because I wear a lot of ties, as you can tell. But uh, So for me, no mugs and ties this year. For me, it was golf shoes and new headphones were the the things that I was looking for. So I got those. Turns out Josh has the same size feet as me, so he has claimed the golf shoes already. And Nadine is on a run this weekend, a 25K run, and she has claimed my headphones. (laughs) So (laughs) here I am. Uh, But I guess my name is technically on those things, even though I'm not currently using them, but they are. So (laughs) so Nadine does have a a run again this weekend, and uh, actually her her family came up from Regina to spend the weekend with us as well. And her sister's running too, but her sister is is amazing when it comes to running. Um, She's doing the 160-kilometer run, where she has, I think it's like 36 hours to run 160 kilometers through the river valley, which uh, is just amazing. We uh, are looking forward to celebrating that victory with her. Uh, so whatever your day holds for you guys, I hope you have a great one. Maybe it's a chance to watch the U.S. Open, watch the Blue Jays go for three in a row, because they went three in a row this weekend. Uh, have a nap, maybe, and naps are always good on Father's Day. Uh, have a barbecue with kids is pretty common. Whatever it is, though, I hope uh, you have a chance to spend it with, uh, with the children, or to give them a call, or they give you a call, and let's not forget to, uh, to thank and call our dads today. I'll be calling mine later this afternoon. Well, we find ourselves at the end of, almost at the very end of this book of Ephesians in this series we've been calling Playbook, which is, We've been talking about how God took steps to, to place us into relationship with Christ, how, how God did the work of that, and, and by his grace, through our faith, we've been brought into relationship with Christ. But, but that wasn't the end of the story. That was a sort of the start of it between us and God. But he then took us and brought us into, into the body of Christ as well. This, and when I talk about the body of Christ, I don't just mean West Meadows Baptist Church. I mean like, like the greater body of Christ. All believers of all time who have made that profession of faith in Christ and are brought together in fellowship in Christ. And over the last few weeks, we kind of turned the corner a bit, where we went from talking about being in Christ and being in the body of Christ to to what does it mean to walk a life worthy of that calling that we have received in Christ. And so a few weeks ago, we started talking about that in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is where that verse comes up. And and the, the verses that come after it are sort of commentary, unpacking what that looks like to go forward. And last week, we specifically talked about how as children of God that we are called to be genuine imitations of him, to be genuine imitations of God in terms of God's love and of his light and of his wisdom not just cheap copies, not where we just sort of read it and go, okay, well, that's what I'm going to go act like, but but actual general imitations where we, we do align ourselves with the words, but we go a step beyond that to see the value and the beauty within them so that we allow them to actually transform ourselves so we're not just sort of mimicking, but we actually are being transformed persons in Christ who are walking this way because of the work that the Holy Spirit has done in us. And at the end of that passage, that's sort of where Paul ends up. He ends up talking about how we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled and under control under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this is uh, one way of saying that the, the sort of the, the regular pattern of our lives is to walk according to the, the will, the desires, and the character of God. So we're those genuine imitations of God. And if we are able to do that, the result will be, at the end of the passage, and around verse, uh, verse 20, he says, the result will be... Joyful expressions, if we're filled with the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, a natural outcome of that, the fruit of the Spirit will include joyful expressions and thankful hearts. Verse 19 and 20, where we ended up last week. But that's where we ended, but that's not actually the end of Paul's thought. You see, Paul actually continues that thought one step further in verse 21. And in verse 21, he says that the complete description of being spirit-filled and the outcome of that will include one other thing. It will also include this in verse 21, that we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul's complete thought here about being spirit-filled is that if we are walking according to the Spirit, if we are in Christ, striving to be transformed imitators of God, Filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, the complete thought he's saying is that our lives will be marked by joyful expressions, by thankful hearts, and mutual submission to one another. That's an expression, that's a natural outcome of being spirit filled. And then in verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, which we're going to cover today, you find that in verse, uh, page uh, 949 in your pew Bibles if you, if you need one, or you can open your Bibles up if you have your own there, to Ephesians 5, through 6:9, we're going to walk through today. Paul unpacks what it means to, to follow this command, this spirit-filled result of being of mutual submission. And he does so by describing it in terms of three common relationships, Three relationships that all of us are familiar with to some extent. The relationships of marriage, of family, and of work. Now as the schedule came together for the sermon schedule, I saw that this particular passage fell on Father's Day. I was was trying to figure out if that was a good fit or not. If we should be talking about these three things on Father's Day. Because usually we're looking for a bit of a lighter message, a happy, you know, go dad go kind of message. And and this one's a little weightier. Like like we got some material we got to cover through today and there's some weightier stuff in here. But as I got thinking about it, I thought, you know what, there probably isn't any better passage in the book of Ephesians to have on Father's Day than this one. And the reason I say that is because while what we're going to cover today relates to everybody, there's nobody kind of immune from what we're going to cover today. Dads in particular, men in particular, I think, can resonate with a lot of what's going to be in here. Because men in particular, if you ask them a question about, about who they are, say, you know, who are you? Hey, I just, if you meet somebody and ask them an introductory question, what do they always default to? they're going to give you an answer about, about husband, father, and work. Those are like three key identity factors in, in men, how they define and understand themselves. And so this actually is going to fall right in line with, with, uh, with the dads that are among us here today too. But it's not just for men, because these relationships are familiar to all people. And each of them, as we go through them one by one, each of them can be like a classroom, like a place that we can go to to learn what it looks like and learn how to be more like God. And it does this in two ways. First of all, each of these areas, each of these relationships teaches us about God. And it causes us to examine ourselves in light of what God's will and God's holiness is. So each of them causes us to reflect and to examine. And when we do reflection and examination, we don't always like the tension that that causes. We don't always like the feeling that that brings to us, but there's an important exercise in the examination itself. And so these three relationships serve as as classrooms where we can do that, where we can do some of the hard work today. But secondly, these three relationships are also each opportunities where we can go into the world and put God's character on display for the world that's watching us. So when they know you are a follower of Christ, when they know you are a Christian, The way you act helps to inform a person's definition of what that means. And these three relationships are places, are opportunities in which we can display that. We can put that on display, God's character on display for the world that is watching. So today, as we open up Paul's words to us in in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to see the beauty of God's plan for us in some of the most common relationships that we exist in every day. And I want you to consider, if you can ask yourself this question, as we are about to head into these three. How can I be a genuine imitation of God in my marriage? How can I be a genuine imitation of God in my family? How can I be a genuine imitation of God in my workplace? Or for those who don't have jobs that are still in school, in school. Teens, school is your job right now. Keep that in mind as we talk about workplace. School is your job until you graduate. <laughs> and then you can talk about other options exist. Like But how can we be genuine invitations in our marriages, in our families, and in the workplace? Now, the first and the primary classroom that Paul describes for us comes up right at the beginning there, where the places where we can learn about God is in marriage. And we see this in verses 22 through 33, which, which he dedicates the most time to, and we're going to spend the most time in there as well. We'll go through the other two fairly quickly at the end. We're going to spend most of our time in this particular passage here today. And in this, about 10 verses... Paul covers three subjects. He covers the conduct of wives, the conduct of husbands, and the relationship of Christ in the church. And we're gonna begin looking at this passage that's familiar to many of us here. We're gonna begin actually at the end. Instead of going from beginning to end, we're gonna start at the bottom. We're gonna start looking at verse 32. And in verse 32, after Paul has described the, the roles and the responsibilities of husbands and wives, We then find in verse 32, he talks about how all of this, these roles, this marriage thing, is a profound mystery. Now remember, in in Paul's writings, this, this term of mystery is a common theme that comes up. And he says this in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul here again, even though he's talking about the marriage relationship, he's talking about it being a mystery. What is this mystery? Well, throughout the letter of Ephesians, we've learned that the mystery was something that was not revealed, a truth that was not revealed until the time of Christ because it couldn't be revealed until Christ. Reason being, the mystery is that Jesus has come to offer salvation to all people, to bring all people in Christ and then into one body, the church. And remember that Paul also wrote to the church in Galatia when he was talking about how all of us in Christ In that situation that there is no longer Jew and Gentile, there's no longer slave and free, there's no longer uh, male and female. Why? Because all are one in Christ. So what does this have to do with marriage? Why is he referring to this? What in the world does this possibly have to do with marriage? Well, here's the point. Here's the parallel he's trying to draw. After having just described all of these different roles between men and women that they're to perform to each other in mutual submission, he's trying to apply this principle by saying, you are all equal. You are all one in Christ. There is not a a man who's superior and a woman who's inferior, as some people sometimes take these verses to mean. He's drawing this back to the mystery of all are one in Christ, that that the, 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 the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But then secondly, he's also trying to point out that marriage is an echo. Marriage is an echo of Christ's union with the church. That a marriage, a Christian marriage, lived out the way Paul describes here is a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church. Therefore, marriage can teach us about God's love in a few ways. The first way that marriage can teach us about God's love is that it gives us a taste of God's love and beauty. This also shows up in verse 32. You see, the way that Paul describes marriage relationship here assumes an ideal situation. And so I just want to state that right at the beginning. This, this assumes an ideal situation that may not be reality for everybody who's here. The ideal situation where both people are believers. The situation where both people are deeply in love and committed to one another where both are willing to serve each other and are putting 100% effort into making it work. He's kind of assuming the ideal situation as we go through this. So so keep that in mind, because that may not be your situation. I I pray it is, and I I pray that if it's not, you're working towards it. But even if it's not where you find yourself right now, perhaps you know somebody or you've seen somebody who who exemplifies that. You can kind of keep them in mind as we go through this situation. Uh, It's sort of the goal to work towards if it's not a current reality for you where within marriage, a couple in this situation, this ideal situation, is experiencing all the joy and the pleasure that marriage is intended to bring, where you are deeply known by another person and you know them, where you are deeply loved by another and you have deep love for them. Now, based upon this verse, Ephesians 5.32, based upon this verse, many years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a bit of an article on it where he talks about how marriage is like a ray of sunshine, and when we first feel its warmth, if you walk out the doors after service today and that sun hits your face, you have this natural tendency to want to turn, kind of turn towards it, to, to not just have it on your, on your left cheek, but you want to kind of fully experience the ray of the suns. Now, here's the thing, is the point is not about the ray. The point is that the ray is intended to point you back towards the source, to point you back towards where the heat, where that pleasure and joy emanates from, not the ray itself. And that's kind of what marriage is intended to do is it gives us a picture of a love that is that is created for every person. God's love. God's love where where he knows you intimately, right down to the finest details, the good stuff and the bad. The parts of you that you're proud of and, and the warts you try to cover up at times. And in light of the good and the bad, he still loves you unconditionally. A love that gives, a love that serves not out of obligation, but a love that gives and serves out of sacrifice and out of a desire to bless the other person. And see, when marriage is on display in this fashion, it provides a taste of God's love and of his beauty, of a love that is is selfless and others focused, a love that is unconditional, demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross is the best example we can find in history of that, but also a love that requires us to, to commit to it if we are going to be able to live out the different roles that Paul explains in this passage. You see, in order for us to understand and to come under the instructions that Paul gives us in, these, in this passage, it requires us first to understand the love of God and, and to understand that it is a selfless, others-focused, unconditional love that leads us to serve and want to honor and bless other people. So, what does marriage also show us? There's a second thing here. See, Paul presents marriage as a picture of God's image of unity and plurality as well. Let me explain what I mean by that. What do you mean when we talk about God's image of unity? Well, when we define God, if you were to read our statement of faith, and if you were to talk about a definition of God, quite often we would say God exists as in, in Trinity form, that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, together, co-equal, three existing, three persons in, in one. Now, while God exists in eternal unity as three in one, they also execute distinct roles in history. See, the role of the Father, the role of the Son, the role of the Holy Spirit is distinct, even though they exist in perfect unity and wholeness together. Now, we could jump into some pretty deep theology from there, but is that at least a familiar understanding of God and of the Trinity that, you, that you've heard before? Three in one, exercising distinct functions within, within the world, within history. Well, that, that also gives an understanding of his plurality. There's unity and plurality in who God is, in the image of God. Now, when we look at verse 31 in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 to talk about how this unity and plurality exists within family and marriage as well. And he he quotes right out of of, uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 when he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now why is he jumping all the way back to Genesis 2? Well, because of this idea of unity and plurality. You see, if you recall the story, or if you were to go read it after the service and kind of get more familiar with it, you'd remember that that God created the man and the woman distinct. That they were distinct creations, and they had different roles within creation and within the relationship that they had together. And this forms the basis of our Christian view, our Christian worldview of marriage, which is the unity of one man and one woman created differently, created in distinction, but brought together in unity in one flesh. There's unity and plurality within this picture of marriage. And so if we're striving to live this out, then we have the opportunity to become more like God and to reveal His nature of unity and plurality to the world around us. And so from a position of wanting to love like God, this this selfless, other-centered, sacrificial love, and from a position of wanting to live out and honor God and reveal His image to the world, His image which, which reveals itself through unity, equality, and plurality, So from love, unity, and equality, let's look back at what exactly these roles look like. Which takes us all the way back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Back to the beginning of the passage. And Paul points out this in verse 23. He says, Husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now in keeping with the passage in Genesis, that is Paul's reference point for what he's going to talk about here we can see at least three ways in which the man, in the Genesis account, the man was called to be a leader, which Paul is referencing back to in his letter in Ephesians 5 now. And we see this. For example, in Genesis 2.15, we see that the man was called and in position to be a provider in that situation, where in Genesis 2.15 it says God placed the man in the garden to work it, to to tend for it, to care for it, to to basically put food on the table, to use a, a modern term, if you will. Now that doesn't mean that he is the sole provider. The, the the woman had responsibilities and roles within caring and tending as well. But, but there is this God-given sense of ambition and drive to provide that that exists within within men. Now, when I I have a daughter who is in her mid twenties and she's getting pretty close to that marrying age. We'll we'll see what happens. I'm not trying to force anything or push anything. But if uh, you know it's, it's, she's in that age, right? So it's going to happen at some point. And so when she and I talk about about husband and, and kind of what to look for, and when and she asked me, Dad, you know, if I brought a guy by, would you approve, disapprove? I, I, I gave her my checklist, <laughs> and it's, it's got about 400 points on it, but no, it doesn't. It has three. It has three points on it, so, but here's the thing. Here's the three points. I, I want her to find a husband who is going to love her and care for her, like just just, just love her with his whole self. I, I want her to find a husband who loves God with his whole self as well. And then my third one, I want a guy with some ambition. I want a guy who, who, who wants to go out there and, 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 and seize the world and make a name for himself and provide for him and his family. Not, not that he's the only one who will do that, but, but has that inherent innate desire and drive to want to go out there and do that. As opposed to a guy who's pretty content to sit in his mom's basement and play video games in a circle of pop cans and Cheeto crumbs. Like I'm not interested in that guy. It doesn't fulfill that third ambition checklist point. And so this first one is this idea of being a provider. Second one that we see in in this example is to be a spiritual leader. See, even when when Eve was created, Adam already was and had a relationship with God that that Eve was brought into. Now, in that relationship, there's equality within that relationship with God, but but Adam was in this role of of telling her about the commands of God and experiencing God's love and, and to help her come into that and to follow them. She ultimately was responsible for her relationship with God herself. But Adam had a responsibility to support and encourage that. And that's kind of what Paul's talking about in in, uh, chapter 5, verse 26, which is a really curious verse, but this is kind of what he's referring to when, when he says, Husbands, part of your job in verse 26 is to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. Cleansing her through the washing of the word. He's not saying, husbands, that your wife will be saved by you. We are not our wives' saviors. They already have a savior, and it's Jesus Christ. We are not their saviors. But husbands, can we take that lead as the priest of our homes? Can we take that responsibility to be the example of God living? Can we take on that responsibility to help those within our homes to follow Christ? Ultimately, they will stand before God without us there. They're ultimately responsible for their relationship with God, but can we take the lead here and now in our homes to lead them and instruct them and guide them and encourage them in the things of Christ and to set those godly examples for them? I pray we will. And I talk to a lot of guys who feel inadequate about this, and if you're sitting here and you feel inadequate about it, I got two suggestions for you. Number one, there is a raft of guys sitting around you who might feel the same thing. Talk to another guy, see what he's doing, see where he's struggling, see how we can help and encourage one another. Uh, Yet give the office a call. I know Pastor Luke, Pastor Ryan, I would love to talk with you and walk with you and help you understand what a first step would be, what it looks like to step out in faith, to take that leadership role as as the priest of your home. So as a provider, as a spiritually, and then thirdly, we can see sacrificially. Ephesians 5 verse 25, where the husband is told to love his wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, men are called to lay down their lives for their wives. To put her needs first. To put her needs first and lay their lives down before her. Now, whether that is in a situation where you're like taking a bullet, literally laying down your life for your wife, or or simply allowing her to choose the restaurant whether it's watching a game with your buddies or, or knowing she had a hard day at the office and taking time to, to sit and spend time with her instead. It's the kind of leadership that constantly is asking the question, how can I serve you today? How can I serve you today? Is what that sacrificial leadership looks like. How can I love on you? How can I serve you? How can I be there for you? you know, and this is the kind of love, this is the kind of service that we see exemplified in Jesus. Jesus. Because how did Jesus become the head of the church? How did he become the head of the church? He did so by laying down his life for it. You see, if Christ never went to the cross, if Jesus never went to the cross to pay the price for our sins, there would be no church. And so in order for Christ to be the head of the church, he first had to become the foundation of the church. If he didn't first lay down his life and be the foundation, there would be nothing to be the head of. He laid down his life as the example that is put forth for us. And so, guys, this might feel a little heavy for Father's Day. It's a high calling. The bar might be set high enough that you think, I can never jump over that. Well, with some help of guys around you, they can hoist you up and help you get higher than you ever thought you could get in fulfilling these roles of what it means to to, to be that leader that God has called us to be in, in our homes, in our marriages, in terms of leading as providers, leading spiritually and leading in sacrifice where we lay down our very lives and be the foundation of those things that our family needs the most. And so whether you're a young guy who's kind of looking forward towards the day of becoming married, or if you're an older guy who's been in it for decades, I want to offer you this Father's Day gift, this Father's Day challenge. Guys tend to like a challenge. So here's the challenge, guys. Honor God. Honor God by loving your wife. Honor God by seeing your wife as the beautiful gift that God has given you. And seek to serve her in every way. Just as Christ loves the church. Now to wives, Paul addresses them as well. And he says, Wives, you're to love your husbands. You're to reflect Jesus Christ. You're to love, show love for Christ in the way that you respond to that leadership that the husband shows. He says this in verse 24. He says, As the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands. Now, this topic of submission causes tension. That's no secret. We all know that causes tension for people, and I understand that. Because if, if we were told to submit, there can be this sense, this fear that there's going to be a loss of equality. There's, there's going to be a loss of dignity if I yield myself under something else. Or if I yield myself under somebody else, I'm going to lose my dignity. I'm going to lose my sense of, of power and equality. I understand that fear that goes in there. And I think another one of the biggest reasons that it exists from, from the ladies that I, I've sat and talked to and, and have helped me understand what, what, what they experience in this verse at times is one of the biggest issues that happens actually is historically this verse has been very misused. And it's been very misappropriated. Where instead of, of this, this act of submission being a voluntary gift that a wife gives to her husband whose leadership is worthy of being submitted to, instead husbands have used it as a weapon where unworthy men have demanded submission. And we shouldn't be surprised when tension enters into the situation when unworthy men use a verse such as this as a weapon, which was never meant to be a weapon. It was meant to be a gift that was bestowed. You know, it's shocking to me when the number of couples over the years that have come into my office for marriage counseling, and, and, and I don't quite know the full situation, but they come in and they sit down on the couch, and the husband is sitting on the edge of the couch, and he's kind of wringing his hands and... And I'll say something along the lines of, well, what's going on? It seemed pretty tense. And his first words would be something like, she doesn't respect me. Tell her to follow me. Tell her to obey me. <laughs> I'm like, where's your problem? <laughs> right? That's not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> if you're acting like that, you're asking me to submit to you, and I'm not going to do it. So, so I don't think she's about to either. Because it seems already one sentence in that you're perhaps not worthy of the leadership that God has called you to lead in first. You're not worthy of being that that godly leader in the house. So I'm not surprised that there's resistance and tension in there. Now the instructions that Paul gives are not in any sense meant to imply that men are superior and women are inferior. That is not what's coming up in this verse at all. How do we know this? We know because throughout the entire passage, Paul constantly refers back to Jesus Christ. Six times he says, as unto Christ, throughout this passage as he gives the examples. And so let's look at the example Christ set. We've already talked about how Christ was not inferior to the Father. Christ existed in unity and equality to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're existing in eternal unity and equality. Yet, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus, being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but instead, what did he do? He took the nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death upon a cross. You see, this is not intended to, it, to imply any sort of inferiority on his part. The fact that Jesus humbled himself to become a servant to the point of death, even death upon a cross, does not make an assault upon Jesus' dignity. Now, wives, if being married to your husband is worse than death upon a cross, we, we can have a conversation. Uh, but if it's not that bad, otherwise, this is not intended, this instruction is not intended to, to belittle or to be an assault on anyone's dignity. Likewise, it's not about dominance. It's not like the wife was existed to cater and to meet the husband's every whim that would just come up. Remember, husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives, not to dominate them, to lay down their lives for their wives. And at times, the best way that that you can lead, at times, the best way you can lay down your life for your wife, husbands, is is to step aside and allow her to lead in some situations. Some of the most important and best situations that have happened in my marriage was when I stepped aside and said, Nadine, you know more about this. You're better equipped. You're better skilled. You've got better insight than I do. What do you think we should do? That's good leadership at times. When somebody else is better equipped and you can default to that person. So putting this all together, what submission means? As a husband strives to love his wife, as he's leading as provider, as he's leading as a spiritual priest in his home, as he's leading sacrificially to the best of his ability. Wives, could you consider giving your husband the gift of cheerful support and encouragement, of always giving him the ability in the room to fail under the banner of grace, and to follow, encourage, and help? And if we're able to do this, for one another. Remember verse 21. Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. Under the leadership of God, never contrary to it. Under the leadership of God, honoring God first and foremost, never contrary to it. In this way, both husbands and wives can become genuine imitators of Christ. Imitators of Christ's character in their homes, and their families. And I believe that we'd be able to give our families and the world a picture of the humility and the love of Jesus Christ that we've experienced personally and then have a chance to exemplify in this first classroom of learning within the marriage. So that's the first and the main illustration that Paul gives us in this passage about how human relationships can be more than than just experiences we have. They, They can be ways that God works through us and are opportunities for us to put his character on display for the world. But there's two more he uses in this passage. And we're going to go through these two a little bit quicker. But they're important ones for us to follow here as well. So next, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul turns to another relationship in the family. That between parents and children. And he says this in in verse 1. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now, the developmental years of children are are extremely important, not only for them to learn and to explore the world around them and to develop some of those senses and abilities, but in the Christian family, the developmental years are also an important time where where values are instilled, where where children learn obedience and ultimately submission to God. How do we connect those dots? Well, the same way Paul does here. You see, Paul is connecting Children's obedience to their parents here, again, referring back to the Old Testament, referring to the Ten Commandments, that, that command to honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, is a direct refer- reference back to, to Exodus, the, the fifth commandment, to honor your mother and father. Now, if you've studied the Ten Commandments before, you'll know that they're divided into groups. Now, the first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. Don't have any idols, don't use any other God. you know, no other gods before me, don't use my name in vain. The last five commandments are about our relationship with each other. The things about not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying, things like that. Now, in the middle is the fifth commandment. Between the commands about our relationship with God and our commands of relationship with each other, and the fifth commandment in the middle, honor your father and mother, can be looked at as sort of a connecting or a hinge commandment that exists within there. And here's the point Paul's trying to make here, is that when we are young, whether it be infants, children, or teens, our parents are representatives of God's authority within our home. We have a relationship with God. That one still exists too in the way that it exists within a child's life. But mom and dad also are examples and representatives of God's authority in the home. And we first learn to obey and to submit to God by doing so in the home, by learning to obey and to submit to our parents. And so if we can learn to do that with our parents, then there's a high likelihood we'll be more successful at that when we become adults. So kids, there's not many kids here, they're in in Sunday school right now. So teens, I guess, who stuck around for this part. (laughs) So teens, God calls you to obey mom and dad. Not because he wants to steal your fun. I remember those days, and I'm like, man, you just want to squash all my fun. That's not what it's about. It's because they love you. It's because they care about you. It's because they, they actually do know a few things. They've actually been there and do understand some of these things, and they want what's best for you. And as we see in this passage, if we can learn to come under the authority of mom and dad as children and as teens, that sets us up to become stronger followers of Christ, stronger followers of God, obeyers of God when we do become young adults and beyond. I'm really concerned if if, if there's a child who won't obey mom and dad, I'm not overly optimistic they're going to want to obey God when they get older. It seems like that, that lesson, that valuable, that principle will go hand in hand in two different settings. Now, moms and dads, keep in mind, you are representatives of God in your home. And so in verse 4, Paul says, do not provoke your children. don't Instead, bring them up in the, in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. You see, the way that you parent, the way that you instruct your children, the way that you love them, the way you discipline them, is going to help those kids to understand their definition of God. Just like on Father's Day, there are some people who have a hard time understanding this idea of a heavenly father, saying, why would I want a heavenly father? My earthly one was terrible, and that was enough for me. See, the examples that we set in our homes have a direct relationship to how people are going to understand and view their heavenly father. So we need to be careful about how we instruct and disciple and bring up our kids. We have a responsibility to do it, though. We have a responsibility to help them grow in knowledge and to grow in obedience to follow God. That's not the church's primary responsibility. That responsibility primarily falls upon the home. The church is in a supporting role to help you teach and train up your children in the things of the Lord. So that hopefully when they reach that age of maturity, they will understand what it means to follow and obey and they will have a greater chance of making that step and having that root of faith take hold and grow in strength as they get older. So we've seen how... how In the classroom of marriage and parenthood, it can help us to learn about God and and, and practically reveal him to the world. So let's have a quick look at the last one now before we wrap up today and talk about the workplace, which, again, if you're in school, put school in place of work. That's your job at this point. So he addresses, Paul here addresses employees and employers. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, you're probably going to see the words masters and slaves that go in there. Now, this is in no way Paul condoning slavery as we come to understand it in, in the Western world. Other parts of Paul's writings, he would outright just condemn the types of things that happen in our understanding of slavery. He's not condoning it here. He's drawing a, 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 an analogy from a relationship that is most closely understood in our context as the employer-employee relationship is what he's referring to here. And beginning in verse 5, <clears throat> he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and sincerity of heart. Just as you would obey Christ, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but also uh, but as, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now, there was a few years back I was discipling a guy and we beat on a weekly occasion. And He was going through a lot of hard times in, in leading different areas in his home. One of the big issues that he had was holding down a job. He had the hardest time doing it. He was very employable and very capable. But every couple of weeks, I'd meet with him after he started a new job, and he'd be angry at his boss, or he'd be like, man, I'm worth more than they're paying me. Can you believe they're trying to treat me this way? And he'd just quit. He'd quit and just walk away from the job because he felt he was being unfurled. Un- fairly treated, or his boss was a jerk type of thing, and so we meet for coffee, and I try to help him walk through this, and one day he shows up with a completely new understanding, a completely new light and energy in his step, and, and I said, what is, what is different with you today? He goes, I just realized I was going to quit my job again, but I came to realize in my devotional time the day prior that I don't actually work for my boss. He goes, I work for God. I'm like, "Yeah." Yes, I'm trying to explain to you for all these weeks. You work for God and it changes whole perspective and the whole way he viewed work and the whole way he viewed how he he provides for his family. You see, that's kind of what Paul's talking about in this passage, is that regardless of what title you hold, regardless of the quality of your earthly boss, even if he or she truly is a jerk, even if that is true, even if they are hard to work for, even if they do think that they can treat you unfairly, there may be reason to consider moving on. But in the meantime, or if you decide to stay, keep in mind who you truly work for. Keep in mind who you truly belong to because you are in Christ. You are a child of God. You are a servant, first and foremost, of God Almighty. And in every situation, and in every relationship, whether that be in marriage or a family and work, we exist to serve Him first and foremost. These other areas are simply places where we can live that out as expressions. And so then finally, he turns in this, in this passage to, to refer to Christian masters or Christian employers, and he says to them with a bit of tone of caution, he says, masters, employers, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So if you are in the role of authority over another person, Keep two things in mind. Number one, regardless of, of job title, God loves all people. God loves everyone. Everyone, is, it, we are all one in Christ. We are all equal in Christ. But secondly, be careful how you exercise your authority and your power. It's not wrong to manage people, it's not wrong to have authority over people. That's not wrong. Paul's been very clear in all three of the examples he put forth here. He's, he's created a hierarchy in all three examples in this situation. He's saying that authority is necessary. Authority can be godly if it's done properly. And when Jesus taught about this, though, keep in mind how he instructed. How did Jesus teach about authority and, and how did he display it? Well, it was never for self, selfish reasons, it was never for personal advantage. Instead, it was seen as an opportunity to instruct a person to help them grow and develop. It was seen as an opportunity to serve them even, to, to come to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, remember he said. And it comes as an opportunity to lift a person up and to express love to them. Sometimes love comes through grace when they make mistakes. Sometimes love comes through correction when they need to be trained or, or repositioned or, or even, even let go at times. It seems harsh, but that can at times be a loving thing for other employees and for the organization, even for that individual, so they can go on to other things. But that's what we're called to do, is, is to be leaders, but to do so with the proper authority and understanding in the way of Christ. So, let's wrap this up. In all of our relationships even in our most normal everyday ones, even the ones you're going to walk out these doors and live in, the ones you're going to get up tomorrow morning and go to work to exist in, they're all critical classrooms where we can regularly come to learn about God. But there are also opportunities where we can serve God and we can put Him on display for our families, for our coworkers, and for the world that's watching. Recall the opening verse, the overarching verse that all of these examples unpack. All of this points back to the one key thing, the one key result of being spirit-filled is that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not out of reverence for our husband or wife or out of our boss or out of our our moms and dads. We would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because it's him that we're serving. It's him that we're seeking to honor. And so in each of these relationships, Paul discusses these two people who potentially could be at odds with each other or... If we are spirit-filled followers of Christ, we can live out joyful expressions. We can live out thankful hearts, and we can live out mutual submission to one another. I want to invite the worship team to come join me up on the platform here. I know that these are hard things at times. Each situation is unique. Each family is different. Each person has different struggles. And so there might be a unique part of what we've covered today that you would struggle with. You may not feel that you have a spouse or a parent or a boss that's worthy of being followed. Well, Jesus Christ is, and ultimately, the one whom we're called to submit to. So out of reverence for Christ, I invite you to consider, husbands, how can you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, how can you support and encourage the leadership of your husbands as you would unto Christ? Youth, obey your parents as you will Christ. (laughs) And parents, train them up. Guide them in the things of Christ. And then employees or employers, remember, first and foremost, we live for and we serve the Lord, and that all are equal in him. Him who first loved us, who first served us, who first gave himself up for us, all to the glory of God the Father. I invite you to stand as I pray. Heavenly Father, as we stand in this place, on this important day, this day that we remember fathers and we celebrate fathers, we again are brought back to the fact, Lord, that you are our good Heavenly Father. You are the one who gave first, who served first, who loved first, who shows what it means to exemplify those things. God, I pray that in all of our relationships, and the three we've talked about today, and, and, and others will find ourselves in the days ahead, that we would simply learn to grow and understand where we're at, where, where we have opportunity to do even more and better job of loving like you, of serving like you, and of sacrificing ourselves for one another in reverence to you. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.